Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Up until now, we've looked at different areas of pathology where the patient is a human, but there's another kind of pathology that sometimes gets overlooked. My guest today is veterinary pathologist, Dr. Nicola Perry. On the show, we'll talk all about veterinary pathology. We'll talk about how Dr. Perry got into the field, and we'll also talk about her teaching experience, including transitioning into virtual teaching and the importance of mentorship. Then after the show, I'll have a preview of my upcoming interview with Dr. Ralph Ruban. But right now, here's Dr. Nicola Perry. All right, Dr. Nicola Perry, thanks for taking the time to speak with me tonight. Oh, no problem at all, Dennis. Thanks so much for having me, and please call me Nikki. I want to start at the, at the beginning for you. So you were originally from the UK, and you did your initial training in vet school there. What was it that brought you then to the, to the U.S.? It was actually my residency that brought me over here, although it wasn't as if coming over here had always been the plan, even though doing a residency was. Okay. I'd, I'd initially been working in general practice for my first few years after I graduated. And then when I reached the stage when I felt like I was ready to start applying for residencies, I applied for three positions. One was at a school in the UK and two were over here. Now, there's no coordinated process or, or time frame when our residencies in pathology become available. They don't kind of fall under the matching program. So right. right at the time when I was applying, um, it just happened that there was only one position being advertised in the UK right then. And it was at a school with a, with a good program. There were a few more schools advertising in the US, but there were just two in particular that kind of appealed to me. And my pathology professor from, from vet school was really helpful at the time I was applying. So he kind of helped me narrow down my options in the US based on his knowledge of the, of the programs and their faculty and whatnot. And then I, I got offers from both of the US schools actually first both in the same few days and, and they only gave me a few days to give them an answer so meanwhile the the application deadline for the uk school wasn't even up yet so i knew i couldn't wait to hear from them before i kind of made my ultimate decision so i just thought okay what the heck let's go to the us uh-huh. uh, I, I think i was i was much braver back then i was only 30 at the time and i remember telling my family that i'd applied to a couple of schools in the US and their replies were all mostly along the lines of, oh, okay, that's nice. And, and then suddenly one day I said, okay, I'm going over to America. And, and there was a certain panic and state of disbelief. I don't think anyone actually believed that I was seriously considering moving over here. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty big move. Was it difficult to get used to be, being here in the US, like, like living here permanently? It was initially. It was, it was a, a big change. I always kind of laugh when I hear one of the old catchphrases of us having two countries separated by one language. And uh, <laughs> it really, it, kind of, it did really feel that way when I, when I first moved out here. You know, we may speak the same language in theory, but a lot of the phrases and stuff that we use, it took a, it took a while for me to, to get used to some of them. And it took a while for people to get used to me. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> did you notice at first, were there some differences in in training or even like general practice between what you were doing in the UK and then when you came here to the US? Well, there was a big difference because I had been in general practice when I was back in the, in the UK initially. 
And then I came over here and started my residency. So I was straight into pathology. So it was just a completely different experience, to be honest, especially okay. back into academia. But it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Now, I've heard you say that one of the things that got you interested in pathology was some of the research opportunities you had at vet school. And I know this was a, n a number of years ago, but are there any of those experiences that really stand out? It, like you could give examples of the way that they influenced you? Uh, I can, yes. There was one large group that I, I worked with on several occasions. They were in the pathology department at vet school in Liverpool, and they were this standalone group of, of researchers in infectious diseases of, of poultry. And at that time, Liverpool Vet School was the only school in the UK that had a specialist group that worked in avian infectious diseases. They, they had their own building facilities and everything. And I had actually done some work with them before I even started vet school because I'd wanted to get some experience working with poultry. And the, the three most senior researchers in the group were, were hugely influential to me on many levels. Even as I was going through my vet school applications, when, that, when I first started doing some project work with them, and they, they served as references for me when I did apply to vet school in the end. So they, mm -hmm. were, they were really thrilled, as you can probably imagine, when I eventually decided to accept a, a position at Liverpool Vet School. And I was able to, to work with them again on multiple occasions at vet school when they were looking for student help during the summer vacations and whatnot. And I, I even keep in touch with them even today. They were just the most amazing people. Now, the eldest of them was initially the, the head of that unit, Dr. Frank Jordan. Um, they actually opened okay. the building after him before he retired. And he sadly died in, in 2015 at the, at the grand old age of 97. And oh, wow. Yeah. Believe it or not, he, he worked there full time even after he retired and, I was there in the 90s when he would have been in his 70s and, and retired at that point. And he still rode his bike into work every single day. He was uh, an amazing guy. And the, the, the two younger senior researchers, they officially took over as, as the heads of the unit when he retired. They were Dr. Richard Jones and Dr. Janet Bradbury. And they also recently just retired and, and we still exchange occasional email updates. So it's it's really nice to, to still have that contact with these lovely people so long after I, I first met them. You know, I, I have such fond memories of them. It's very nice. Yeah, that is that is nice to keep in touch with people like yeah. that because you never know that connection might might come in handy at, at some time. Exactly. So now you're the head of pathology at uh, Tufts University School of Veterinary Medicine. This is your second time at Tufts, isn't it? That's correct. It is. Yeah, I was there back when I was kind of relatively a junior pathologist when um, it was kind of, I think, 2005 to 2009, something like that. So it's been a little while, but um, they've taken me back in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> good sign. So now this new position then as head of pathology, that's fairly recent. It just <laughs> the past couple of months. But how has that experience been so far? It's all been quite difficult in general because we're really, really short-staffed, and especially on the anatomic pathology side. We, we just don't have enough anatomic pathologists to cope with the workload that we have. So everyone there is, is massively overburdened at the moment, and 
and they hadn't even had a senior anatomic pathologist there for about the about eight months or so before I arrived. So you can probably imagine that this had led to there being an awful lot of things for me to try and start mm. addressing when I arrived. So so right now the, the administrative side of, of my job is enormous. It takes up a, a really massive part of my week. It's it's pretty much a full-time job in itself, to be honest. And I, I think it will be like this until we can actually begin bringing in some more senior anatomic pathologists at some point, really. You know, I was I was actually going to ask you about that because we hear about, and I've had many people on this podcast already talk about shortage of pathologists, shortage of forensic pathologists, especially. Is there a shortage of veterinary pathologists? I've, I've discussed this with people before, and uh, there is, in a way, it's not the same kind of shortage like the medical field suffers from. It's not like there aren't enough people who want to go into pathology because we actually do have an awful lot of students and, and veterinarians who end up wanting to go into pathology. But okay. the, the, the shortage really comes from the fact that the, uh, there are a couple of different areas really we don't have enough training program positions to be able to take more people in and also when you think about the academic units for example which which tend to be the, the places that that suffer mostly from shortage of pathologists it, it, that tends to be mostly uh, a financial thing because schools often can't afford to to, to fully staff their um, pathology units. Um, at the moment, that's what we're suffering from, really. It's, it's a, a budget thing. Oh, sure. Can we talk about the teaching aspect of your position for a little bit? I, I imagine everything is virtual now. What is it like to, like, I, I suppose since, since you've been there, it's been virtual, but I know you've done some teaching before that. What is it like to transition to virtual? So I arrived here in June after, mm -hmm. I guess, after the initial chaos of the transition had kind right. of settled down across the world for everyone in, in the education field. But I know it was as difficult for our group at that time as it was for just about everybody else who, who had to suffer through it all. So all at that time, all the general didactic coursework was over by that time in June when I arrived for the academic year. But mm -hmm. the, the group had clearly done a really fantastic job reacting to the to the transition in general. So over the summer when I arrived, the majority of the of the teaching all across the school really involved the senior students on clinical rotations. And the main thing that we had to deal with at that time was how to mostly revamp the, the three-week clinical rotation and do it safely following all the, the social distancing guidelines and, and making sure that we, we didn't exceed the maximum number of, of people in different rooms at any one time, those kinds of things. Okay. So it's really been difficult, but everyone has done a, a, a great job. They already have been fabulous. And two of our junior pathologists coordinate the senior rotation, and they did a great job navigating all the, the pitfalls to plan things out as, as best possible. And one of our our experienced senior clinical pathologist, Dr. Perry Bain, he did a, a really fantastic job redesigning one of our conference room setups for, for the student sessions. He, he kind of set it up with multiple student microscopes that were separated by plexiglass shields. So 
students can work safely within almost like a little cubicle surrounded by these plexiglass shields. But they're all, you you might get six students in the room together working on microscopes and and the, the microscopes have cameras attached to them and Dr. Bain synced them all so that to the projection screen and also to a, a tablet so that the whole setup allows him to, to send a, a live feed of, of slides to students and it lets them all see the same thing at the same time and kind of point things out if they uh-huh. want to ask questions. And, and most importantly, it lets them do this without getting into each other's personal space as you would normally have to do if you were if you were looking over someone's shoulder into their microscope. So it just keeps that, that kind of social distance um, guideline in place. And it's, it's really, it keeps them safe and and it keeps the the teaching going as well. So it's been brilliant. Uh I have noticed that a lot of people are coming up with very creative ways to still fulfill teaching requirements, but, you know, at the same time, fulfilling the social distancing and all that kind of stuff. So there's been some very creative solutions to that kind of thing. And that sounds like that's what you're describing there too. Yeah, definitely. I'm certainly glad that I'm always surrounded by people who are much more brilliant than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you and me both. (laughs) I'm curious how the, the technology aspect of veterinary pathology has changed over the years. You know, there's always these, there's new uh, machines and stains and procedures in medical pathology. Has veterinary pathology kept up with that as far yeah. as the technology? Uh, yes, I think there has been a, a big change in the pathology world in general, obviously including in our world of, of veterinary pathology. Now, that the molecular side of pathology is, is definitely not my field of, of expertise, but they have gone through some significant advances in, in different areas in the veterinary world that have really helped our understanding and and diagnosis of, of many diseases, especially different cancers, for example. And as you can imagine, a lot of the advances in our field tend to kind of align or, or mirror those that are occurring in the medical pathology world. Uh-huh. I, think, I think one of the main differences is, is often the timeline of the introduction in that diagnostic setting so often we might have new diagnostic tests, for example, but they they may remain in more in the research setting for a bit longer in the vet world just because of expense, really. So initially, oh, sure. you know, when something pops up initially, they're probably too expensive for wide-scale use in, in veterinary clinics, for example. So it often just takes a little bit longer for these useful things to to really enter the diagnostic setting in a in a in a real world kind of way. I think one of the other things which is important to mention is just like in the medical world, digital pathology has also become a, a really huge deal in the veterinary pathology world too. It's it's oh, really? yeah, it really has been. It's it's used really heavily in in research settings, especially and but even in the diagnostic world too, the a, a lot of corporate diagnostic pathology companies are using it now, and some companies have actually transitioned all of their pathologists to using digital pathology only. So, a lot of them can work from home and, and just have all their slides sent to them at home. It's, it's been a, a great transition for many companies. Do you have much experience with using digital pathology? No, a, a little bit, but um, but I don't use it on a day to day basis for diagnostics. We we do have a, a slide scanner 
in, in work, but um, I tend to just scan a few slides at a time for teaching purposes and things like that. We, we don't, you know, we're not using it all the time like many of these corporate companies are. I see. Okay. Pathology in general seems a bit unknown or lesser known, I guess, in the in the greater medical community. You know, we're often tucked away in the basement. Uh, <laughs> and I would think veterinary pathology would be even less known. Do you think that's true? Uh, yes, I, I definitely do agree. I think pathology is is really quite widely misunderstood in, in the veterinary world as well. It's it's funny because most vet students, and probably actually most vets, really don't even view pathology as a clinical specialty. I feel like pathology mostly has this reputation of being just this tedious course that you have to get through at vet school. It contains a huge amount of, of really deep stuff that you have to learn, and it's a smelly rotation, you know. And I think some of that misinformation is really our fault as, as teachers and as curriculum designers because the, the didactic courses that we put together are still largely being taught like they were taught several decades ago. They're, they're often much more focused on the actual knowledge content than on the clinical relevance. Okay. So it often ends up that it's really just the students who take their own random inherent interest in the content and who can maybe work through all the, the stuff and see the relevance to themselves, even though that it hasn't been shown primarily to them. It, it's really often only these students who start to follow up during their school time with us in pathology and, and start to show an interest. It's often not until students come through on clinical rotations and in their final year that they start to, to see the relevance. But often, unfortunately, by then, it can be a little bit late because many of them have already gone down a certain pathway of, of pursuing a, a different specialty. So I do think that we need to do a much better job at, at marketing pathology in vet schools and, and also to, to do that earlier for students as well, to, to bring them in. Mm -hmm. And I know you're, you're pretty active in, in doing that. In fact, one of the things you've done, you wrote an article for the Pathologist magazine just earlier this year. And the purpose of it was trying to raise awareness about the field. One thing you wrote about in this article that I wanted to ask you, you wrote about the differences between a general veterinary practitioner and a veterinary pathologist. Can you kind of briefly go through what those differences are? Uh, sure, yeah. The, the difference can probably be best explained in parallel with the, the situation in, in human medicine, really. So a general veterinary practitioner is really the equivalent of, of your primary care practitioner, that kind of thing. So these, these veterinary practitioners, they'll see first opinion cases involving whatever animal species they may tend to specialize in, whether it's a, a small animal vet who might work with cats and dogs or uh, a large animal vet who, who might work with, with cattle or sheep or horses. Uh, and these primary care practitioners, these vets, these general practitioners, they're the ones that, that most people first envision when, you know, when they think about what a vet is, that they're the vets that you'll find in all the, the typical high street clinics across the country, those kinds of things. Uh -huh. And on, on the flip side, the, the veterinary pathologist is the equivalent of the, of the MD pathologist. So the vet pathologist has gone through vet school in the same way that a, a veterinary 
practitioner, general practitioner would have gone through vet school. And, but then the, the pathologist has also completed a, a residency training program in pathology and has also passed the, the, the board certifying exam in veterinary pathology or, or whatever the relevant specialty exam is called in, in their country. So it really is just very much a, a comparable situation to, to what happens in the medical field, really. Last year, you presented a talk at the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons meeting. And, and your topic was mentoring and why it's important. And actually, this video is available on YouTube. I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes to it. How did you get involved with this meeting? Well, you've really done your homework on me. I'm quite amazed. You've been <laughs> that's, that's part of the fun. Yeah. So... I think, um, well, now that I think of it, that was actually the last time that I actually even traveled anywhere. Certainly the last time I was on a plane anyway. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, so first, just to help explain for anyone who's listening, the, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, or the RCBS, as we, we call it, that's actually our regulatory body for veterinarians in the UK. They, they play many important roles across our profession. But one of them is to serve basically as the, a kind of a central licensing body for veterinarians. So, so in this kind of a role, they operate in a similar way to how the, the state licensing boards operate over here for MDs. Oh, okay. Now, their name, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, is initially a bit confusing for anybody who's not a vet in the UK. They're, they're not, they're not, a uh, uh, an organization of surgical specialists in the UK that the term veterinary surgeon is the general term that, that we that we give to all vets after they graduate. Oh. So over here in North America, we just use the term veterinarian. But in the UK, when we become licensed, we get the, the title, you know, we become a veterinary surgeon. It just means we're a veterinarian and, okay. and we get we get called uh, a member of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. So that's just a bit of background on what, what that means. But the, that actual meeting was the RCVS, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons Fellowship Day. And it was a, a meeting to, to celebrate the, the vets who had just been awarded fellowship of the RCVS. So when you get awarded fellowship, you go from being a, a member of the RCVS to becoming a fellow of the RCVS and it's um it's an award that's given to, to vets based on their contributions to the profession. And I was actually very honored to receive that award last year. So that was why I was there. And they had asked attendees to to submit proposals for presentations on any topic of their choice. And they chose a handful of the of the proposals to be presented on the day. Now, I, I chose mentoring as my proposal because it's, it's really been a, a, a very central theme throughout my whole career. I know I, I mentioned earlier about just a few of the, of the great mentors that I'd had at vet school, and I've certainly had many fabulous ones in addition throughout the rest of my career as well. So I, I feel like I learned the value of, of mentoring really early on. And, and just how important it is to, to people, regardless, I think, of, of your profession or your specialty area. And I've, I guess I've always made it a, a key aim of my own to, to give back in the same way 
that people have given to me over the years. So I, I've always done what I could to help students and vets and, and residents whenever I could. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one of the things that I hadn't actually realized all those years ago when I felt like all I was doing was paying it forward was just how rewarding it would also be for me to, to, to be a mentor for someone. So that was really all the central theme of my talk, really. Uh-huh. I, I definitely feel like mentoring is a great way to draw people into the field. Yeah. One thing about the talk that uh, you were, and now this is from 2019, and you were talking about distance mentoring, um, mm-hmm. basically virtual as we, as we call it now, I guess. And you were talking yeah. about this a year ago before anybody knew what a, what a coronavirus was. Yeah. So I found that interesting. It was a bit of uh, prophetic, I guess. Yes, I must admit it's um, it, it's been kind of weird. I've I've worked with a lot of students and, and residents through that kind of virtual line for many many years now. Um, not really, I guess, not really knowing how useful it would eventually become to to most people. So I'm I'm, I'm never usually ahead of my time. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take that one as a, a bit of fun. Did, did you find that gave you a, a bit of, a, of an advantage since you were already kind of used to the distance learning thing? Um, I don't know whether it gave me an advantage. I think it it helped because I, I was already doing that kind of stuff with, you know, with my student friends and resident friends and whatnot. So it didn't seem like too big a transition just for the mentoring side. But I'm I'm not a, a tech person at all, so okay. you know all the the teaching through through Zoom and whatnot has been incredibly awful for me to, <laughs> to to have to do on a you know on a daily basis. Or all of our meetings now at, at school are all on Zoom, and everything gets cut off every now and then, and we lose connections and stuff. And it's and just like everybody across the world, you just want to throw the computer out of the window, you know. So mm-hmm. I think we're, we're coping somehow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the best we can do. As a veterinary pathologist, how difficult is it to get, you know, patient history or just information like physical exam information and things like that? And, and the reason I ask, like, my wife and I have had cats, and we we had a dog for a, a, a while, and before that, we even had ferrets. And <laughs> you know, any time the animal gets sick, and you go to the veterinarian office and it's you know the human is interpreting what they think is happening with the animal and then telling the vet and then is that it feels like you're even one more step removed from that as the veterinary pathologist so you're getting almost third-hand information yeah is it difficult sometimes to to get accurate information that way it is yeah i I think that in general the history thing is very variable on on one level but sometimes i get excellent and, and really very targeted histories on the submission forms that I, I get. And then other times I get something that might just say skin disease or, or even just skin or something unhelpful like that. Uh-huh. Often I also have to do a lot of detective work. I have to wade through a large chunk of text, for example, and, and just try and figure out exactly what I need to pull out of that text, which might be relevant for today for that specimen they're sending in. And, and try and figure out why they're sending in and, and even what they're sending in sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to, to wade through and figure it out. 
And strangely, I, I used to always, just randomly for no reason at all other than in my own mind, I used to assume that MD pathologists would have a much better time with the histories that they receive. But I have learned through my um, my Twitter education, through my yeah. friends there, that yes. <laughs> this is definitely not the case. I'm sure you, um, you can back this up. Yes, I can. And, and funnily enough, even just today on Twitter, the the Instapath team on there, they put out a, a fun tweet asking pathologists what was the most time-consuming step in, in making a diagnosis. And we saw a lot of responses on just this very thing that discussed the, the issue of, of getting the right information and, and history and stuff. So it seems that the problem of getting the right information is is clearly very much a, a universal one, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I mean, for all the the upside of the electronic health record systems, there's still uh, there's still a ways to go with those things as far as making yeah. them uh, user-friendly. Definitely. Same in the veterinary world, too. Okay. One of the goals that I have for this podcast is to inspire the listeners to explore the fields of the people that I, that I speak with. Do you have any stories of ways that you've inspired future veterinary pathologists? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of students and, and vets and, and, and residents over the past couple of decades who are at various stages of, of being on the, on the pathway to becoming veterinary pathologists. And I, I think one of the common things in most cases is that maybe I've been able to help them pinpoint something that makes them realize that they do have way more things to sell themselves into pathology with than they actually realize. And I realize that this is nothing unique to me. It's something that I think all of us old people tend to be able to do quite easily just because we've been around for long enough. And, and I think also it's it's easier to see the bigger picture of, of what someone else has to offer than what they can see themselves. And I have a relatively recent story that, that might kind of illustrate this. Okay. But I came across a new student friend just a couple of months ago in August. Amy, she's a, a vet student at Liverpool University in the UK. So that's the vet school that I graduated from mm, and it's all right. also my home city as well and she had come across me on this there's a really popular networking site for vets it's called vets stay go or diversify now it's a it's a uk based creation and it's a, it's a brilliant creation but it's a it's a global entity it's literally used by by vets and and vet students thousands of them all across the world and i'm I'm part of the little mentoring page that, so anybody who wants to, to sign up to, um, to be listed there who, who might be interested in helping students and vets, you can just sign up and, and I'm on there for pathology. So Amy, my new friend, she had found me there and she had emailed me just randomly to tell me about her interest in pathology. And she asked if we could chat at some point. So we did, we had a Zoom call a couple of days later and we chatted for a couple of hours actually. It was really nice. And I was just able to answer a lot of her questions that, that she had about working in pathology, how to kind of carve out a, a pathway to, to start in that career and stuff like that. She was telling me her story of the things that she'd done so far. She, she's just finished her second year at vet school. 
Now, in the UK, the, the veterinary degree is a, it's a five-year degree course. And she just finished second year, and she's actually now doing an intercalated one-year degree in comparative pathology before she heads back into her third year. And she was telling me about all the, the different student work experiences that she's had over the past couple of years. And as she was talking about all this, it really became very apparent to me that that many of her experiences had played a role in the next experience that she found. And and this was because of, of connections that she was making during each experience and taking really good advantage of them. Uh, and also, it was especially because of her own willingness to get out of her comfort zone and literally walk up to, to random professors at, at meetings or um, at dinner and stuff like that and introduce herself to them and ask them for advice. So people along those kind of lines had often recommended that she might apply for, say, X, Y, or Z student research opportunity or whatnot. And she would do, you know, she would follow their advice and, and she was successful in most, most of these applications. And I think although she obviously knew about the links between the experiences, I don't think she really recognized the significance of it all. But it was really very apparent to me very quickly. And it, it was just a very important message that I could see that she had to share with other students. So the next day, I, I emailed her after I'd been thinking about it the previous day. And, and I asked her if she would be interested in submitting an abstract for a student poster for, for this year's ACVP annual meeting. That's the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. Okay. I suggested a title of something like five networking tips for students on the path to vet path. And she was just really excited by the prospect of this. She put together a great abstract. We, we submitted it and it got accepted for the, for the conference. Uh, and then she was just so thrilled about this. And she put together a really fabulous poster, basically using herself and her own different experiences like a case study highlighting some of the most important on these di- kind of the importance of these different aspects of, of networking for students. It, it was really a very well received poster at the conference and, and they liked it so much that they even promoted it on their social media pages. And since then, she's had a few organizations reach out to her to do various things like give little webinars for student groups and whatnot. Uh-huh. And it, it's been really fun for me to see her success and, and she's been really excited by how well his first conference poster went down. So I think that's my favorite, my, my current favorite way in which I've been able to kind of indirectly inspire someone. But I have to be honest that most students come to me already full of inspiration. My job is very, very minimal when it comes to that. I think it's, um, not something that I can take credit for. It's all on the students themselves. We have a we have a really enthusiastic bunch of, of young people out there, and, and I feel very content that the the future of veterinary pathology is is a very fortunate, um, a very fortunate picture right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is a that is a really good story, and it's a it's a great message. There is something to be said for well, first recognizing the opportunities that are in yeah. front of you, and then taking advantage of them uh, like she did. That's that's great. She did a really great job. I, I'm so proud of her. She was, um, 
And I don't think she really realized the significance of everything that she'd done. So I'm proud of her. Yeah. Yeah. You should be. That's, that's, amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. If someone is interested in a career as, as a veterinary pathologist, say someone in high school age, maybe, or early college age, um, or university, what are some things that they could or should do in order to kind of get into that career path? So I think after my little spiel on mentoring earlier, I don't think it'll be much of a surprise to you when I say that it's really important that they should find a mentor or, or more than one. Uh -huh. um, I think that you always need people who can give you some information about the different career paths that pathology can involve because it's not just about sitting down at a microscope all day. Now, obviously, yes, you can find jobs that do focus on this if that's what you want, but there are many, many different job descriptions out there that pathologists hold. And also a good mentor can also help you kind of figure out all the, the different types of experiences that you might need to, to seek out during vet school to help you see the different areas that pathologists work in and, and just to help you get to add all the different experiences to your CV so that you are ultimately competitive when you start applying for residencies. A good mentor can also help you network, just like Amy did. You know, she kind of used her mentors to, to network herself as well. Right. And, you know, a good mentor can really help you to, to network and find these opportunities. I, th I think it's really important to get a wide range of experiences before you apply for the residency training programs because the residencies are really competitive and students need to be able to emphasize their interest in the field by by having some experiences and projects on, on their CV. It's it's not really much different to the situation when when you're applying for the vet school in general. You know, you have to have a bunch of different experiences on your CV to be able to show that you're interested in, and you've made some some headway, if you like, into, into exploring the different opportunities that, that might be out there for vets. I think also a good mentor can also be very useful when it comes to actually applying for residencies. They can, they can help people format their CV, their CV properly to, to really highlight the relevant experiences, help them kind of select the different programs they should be targeting, give them a reference. Um, I, I really can't emphasize enough just how important it is to have someone or, or multiple someones to to help guide you in this way as you know as you're going through your pathology journey. I always say that the pathology is a, is a team sport, and, and I usually mean that the practice of pathology when I say that. But I, I think the same philosophy also applies when you're a student or or a graduate pursuing a, a residency program. I, I think it still takes a team and uh, you know, a mentor or three should, should definitely be part of that team for sure. Okay. Yeah. That's some great advice. Dr. Nicola Perry, Nikki, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. This is, this has been great. Oh, anytime. And thanks so much for having me. I'm honored that you thought of me and um, it's really nice to join you tonight. So thank you again. Big thanks to Dr. Perry. It was really interesting to get her point of view of things both from the UK and from the veterinary side of things. And of course, I'll have links in the show notes to all of the things we talked about today. And that's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. You can always follow the show on Twitter at peopleofpath. 
I heard from Elise Gray recently, who you may remember from episodes number one and 31, and she told me that after hearing our interview, someone emailed her and said she was inspired to become a PA and asked for more information on how to go about it. And speaking of inspiring people, if you like this episode, please share it with someone you know, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. Now here's a preview of my upcoming interview with Dr. Ralph Ruban. But what would you say would be the greatest advances in treatment of pancreatic cancer that you've seen in your career? Yeah, so certainly as you allude to the improvements in the safety and efficacy of the Whipple procedure and moving it forward so that more and more, more advanced lesions can now be safely resected, even if they involve some of the large vessels, now the surgeons can resect them. Moving to robotic, uh, less invasive surgeries clearly improving some patient outcome. But I think really the, the biggest advances have been in an understanding of the genetics of familial pancreatic cancer, uh, because you can predict who's at risk of developing pancreatic cancer. You can predict if their family members are at risk. Um, so for instance, BRCA2, the second breast cancer gene, increases the risk of breast cancer, but it also increases the risk of pancreatic cancer. And so identifying uh, someone with pancreatic cancer who has a germline BRCA2 mutation, you can help the other family members. Like they can go get mammographies and get tested and so on. But also, very importantly, they've been proven to be the uh, biggest target or most effective target for therapy. To hear more from Dr. Ruban, tune in next week on the People of Pathology podcast.